Well, if you would, look at that Nashville statement we gave you. And today, we will not read very much of it together, but I do want to just read the first few paragraphs of the preamble on that front page. And uh, before, I, before I do, I'll just again say what this is. It's, it's a statement that is given by the, the Biblical Council for Manhood and Womanhood. That many authors and pastors and scholars that, that you know and respect were uh, the, the original signers and writers of this document, men like John Piper and Al Mohler and Mark Dever and Tim Keller all came together. John MacArthur, they all, they all are, came together in, in, in unison to, to make this public statement about these issues that we face in our culture as the church. And, and uh, I want to read the preamble to you to help get us going this morning towards our text. And so it uh, begins with the verse, Psalm, 100, Psalm 103 Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. Evangelical Christians at the dawn of the 21st century find themselves living in a period of historic transition. As Western culture has become increasingly post-Christian, it has embarked upon a massive revision of what it means to be a human being. By and large, the spirit of our age no longer discerns or delights in the beauty of God's design for human life. Many deny that God created human beings for his glory and that his good purposes for us include our personal and physical design as male and female. It is common to think that human identity as male and female is not part of God's beautiful plan, but is rather an expression of an individual's autonomous preferences. The pathway to full and lasting joy through God's good design for his creatures is thus replaced by the path of short-sighted alternatives that sooner or later ruin human life and dishonor God. This secular spirit of our age presents a great challenge to the Christian church. Will the church of the Lord Jesus Christ lose her biblical conviction, clarity, and courage and blend into the spirit of the age? Or will she hold fast to the word of life, draw courage from Jesus, and unashamedly proclaim his way as the way of life? Will she maintain her clear, countercultural witness to a world that seems bent on ruin? We'll stop there. You can continue to read more later. The 14 affirmations and denials that follow in the statement are not themselves authoritative. I want to say that, make that clear, that this is not an authoritative document. That's not why I gave it to you. Don't, don't, don't append it onto Revelation 21, 22. Don't, don't do that. It's, it's, it's crafted by men. It's, it's fallible. But it is a clear and accurate and necessary expression of what is authoritative in the Word of God. And I say necessary because we live in a day and age where not only does the world reject what God teaches about the Word of God, but, but inside the church, people are distorting what the Word of God has said. So you might say, why, why do we need something like this? Can't we just point to the Word and say, look what it says? And yes, we, we can and we should. We should labor in the Word, but, but many look at those same passages and, and they explain it away and, and, and they twist it and they distort it. And so we need to, to be able to be clear from the Word, based in the Word, what God's Word actually says. We live in a day and age in which false interpretations of these things are just continually being propagated. And we live in a day and age when, when believers 
just do not want to be clear in order to save face in our culture. Maybe in the name of winsomeness, maybe in the name of open doors, but believers, time and time again, authors, musicians, pastors, churches, denominations, schools, are compromising on these issues. So, we have a responsibility to bear witness to the truth. That is the church's responsibility. That is your responsibility as a believer is to know what God's word says about biblical sexuality and to bear witness to that truth. But more than that, what I want to encourage you with this morning is that we don't only have a responsibility to do that, we have the opportunity to do that. It's an opportunity for us. Because when the world asks, does God really say this? And we say, yes, he does. This is what he says. We have an opportunity to, to tell the world that Jesus is better than anything that you offer. Jesus is better than anything this world promises. You say, I need this to be satisfied, and, and I believe that Jesus is all I need to be satisfied. So, so, so when we stand firm on God's word and we stand firm on what he has taught on these things, we get to, it, it, it may be, even in our very nominally Christian culture, it may be the best opportunity we have to bear witness to Christ in this day and age. And further, when we are rejected, when we are disdained, when we are despised for holding that line, we have the opportunity to suffer with Christ. We have the opportunity to to to, to be identified with him in, in the rejection the world gave him, and, and, and to know that and to know him in that. And, and so while, while we may easily look at the world and want to cower away from it or want to, want to not stand our ground, we, we realize we're, we're actually losing the opportunity to bear witness to Christ, to bear witness to his glory, and to, and to know him more by suffering with him. It's an opportunity. This day and age presents us with this challenge, this opportunity, and, and the last thing I want to say is that it's not a very different day and age from 2,000 years ago. If you look through the letters in the New Testament, over and over and over again, Paul addresses churches who live in a context of rampant sexual immorality. We are not the first generation to experience this. We are, we, we are not the first Christians that have ever had to be different and be separate and, and, and stand the ground of what God's word has said. And, and, and so there, there is no excuse when we look back through time at not doing that. Because Christians have done that for thousands of years. We are not the first. We are not alone. And Paul wrote to the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago on these things. And that's what we're going to look at today. You can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. And our passage today is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. We'll begin reading at verse 1, just to give us a little bit of context from last week. First Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul begins in verse 3 by saying, this is the will of God. This is the will of God. And have you ever asked yourself, or asked God, God, what is your will for my life? God, what do, you, what do you want me to do? And, and we ask that question when we face critical junctures in our lives, right? We, we, we need to what school to go to, or who to marry, or, or where to live, or when to retire. And we ask these questions, God, what's your will for my life? And, and God gives us guidance and counsel, but, but the reality is Scripture doesn't say a whole lot about those types of situations. God provides wisdom and help, and, and, he, and he guides us. But what Scripture does reveal is, is is God's will for how we live our lives. We, we may not always know what we should do next, but he calls us how to live our lives, calls us how to walk. And, and I will admit, church, that when I first read this text this week, I thought, is this really what Redeemer Church needs to hear right now? Uh, like, considering the, the last three months, is, is, do, do we need to hear a sermon on, on biblical sexuality? <laughs> and... All right. <laughs> so, as I wrestled through that, I, I, God just helped me to see that sometimes it's in, it's in the times when we do not understand what he is doing. It's in the times when we, when we do not know where we are going. The times when we are seeking wisdom and seeking his help in all these critical junctures that, that what we are apt to do is just forget about the main thing. We forget about God's calling on our lives to walk in holiness. And we take our minds off because we are so, we are so wrapped up in, in whatever is going on. But, but today, and over the next few weeks, God is calling us to fix our attention back on what he has revealed for us to do, which is to walk in sanctification, to walk in holiness, to, to pursue set-apartness for his glory. And as we do that, he will guide us. As we do that, he will lead us. As we do that, he will help us and he will give us wisdom. But, but let us right now give ourselves to this instruction that God gives us because this is his will for Redeemer Church. His will for Redeemer Church is that we walk in purity. That's what God wants for Redeemer Church. He wants us to walk in purity. Today's passage gives us four things that we need to know in order to do that. Four things that we need to know in order to, to live in purity, to, to walk in purity more and more in a way that pleases Him. The first of these is verse 3. Four things we need to know to walk in purity. The first one is God's instruction for purity. We need to know what God says about purity. We need to know what God instructs about these things. So look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 3 again, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so Paul begins with this, this general truth that the will of God is your sanctification, that is, your set-apartness. 
from sin for His glory, your holiness, your, your progress in becoming more like He is, holy like He is holy. That's what God's will is. And then, and then He narrows in for the rest of the passage on one aspect of that sanctification. And, that, and that's purity. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so, let's just ask two questions about that command. Abstain from sexual immorality. First, what does it mean to abstain? To, to, to abstain is, is to have nothing to do with it. To, to, to not participate in it. To make a clean break from it. To, to allow no room for it in your life. That's what it means to abstain from something. There's no hint of it in your life. You're not allowing it in at all. And he says abstain from sexual immorality. And that word for sexual immorality is just one term in the New Testament that stands for anything that is outside of God's design for sexuality. That's what that word is referring to. Anything that is out of God's design for these things can be captured in that term. It's an all-encompassing term. And so he's saying, he's saying don't have anything to do with anything that is outside of God's design for for marriage and sexuality. If if it's outside of his design, abstain from it completely. Do not let it into your life. That's his instruction. And so, one way we could ask them, what are those things? We we could go through the whole Bible, verse by verse, line by line, and say, well, well, what, what specific things has he said are immoral? What specific things has he said are not good? And, and God says a lot about those things. He, he, there are a lot of passages that shed light on what things are immoral. But there's also many things that the scripture doesn't even talk about that are also sexually immoral. And what scripture does is it bases whatever it says in one clear picture. Just like an artist can, can detect a forgery because they know the real thing so well, and they can see when that is not the real thing. God has given us a picture of these things. And if we know that picture, and if we understand that picture, then we can understand what is sexual immorality, what constitutes sexual immorality. And so I want you to turn back to Genesis 2, and I just want us to see this picture together. Genesis 2, and just see this, this is God's design. This is God's picture for marriage and sexuality. Genesis 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's, that's the picture that God gives us. That, that, that's, his, that's his good 
design. That's his, that's his good creation of these things. That, that, that there was not a helper fit for him, and God made a helper uniquely fit for him. And there was no one else that was fit besides this woman, this woman that he called Eve. And we see Adam burst out into the first love song, burst out into poetry, at last, poor Adam James saying, at last, Adam, Adam saying, at last, when he saw Eve, and, 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 and they became one flesh in a, in a lifelong marriage covenant. And that is God's design. That's it right there. Now, now the, the Nashville statement that I referenced earlier, you don't, you don't need to turn there, but I just want to read how they summarize that truth, what they say this design is. In the first article, we affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. And then the second one says, we affirm that God's revealed will for all people is chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. That's the picture God gives us. It's, 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 it's simple. It's clear. Anything outside of it constitutes sexual morality. One man, one woman, lifelong marriage covenant, enjoying God's good gift within that covenant. If you're not in that covenant, God says that there's, there's no context for you to express that sexuality, and if you are in that marriage covenant, then that is your context, and there is no other context. So whether you're single or married, this is God's design. This is God's design. And so, in your thoughts, in your attitudes, in your actions... In your heart, you need to ask, our, ask this question, are we abstaining, having nothing to do with, making no room for sexual immorality in our lives? Are you abstaining from it? Have you made a clean break from it? Are, are, are you having nothing to do with it? If it's outside of that design, whether you're single or married, if it's outside of that design, are you abstaining? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Right now, I just want you to be able to answer that question in your own life. Yes or no? Am I? And if the answer is no, and for all of us, at some level, the answer is is probably no, that we need to grow more and more into this. We need to know that, that this passage comes in the context of good news. It comes in the context of God, good news because God is coming to us with this instruction, again from last week, in the context of grace. Finally then, brothers, God has adopted us into his family and now he's coming to us with these instructions saying abstain from sexual immorality, but, but he's coming to us as, and he's saying, if it's there, come to me. You don't need to clean yourself up before you come. You don't need to make yourself pure before you come. Come to me. And he says in Isaiah, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How amazing is it that the God, the holy God we son about, would invite those whose sins are like scarlet to come to him with those sins and to be changed and to be forgiven and, and to be made clean. That's what God is inviting us to today. So, so, so come under the weight of conviction where there is sin. Don't push it away. Don't reject it. Accept it. Accept that God's word is a shining on your heart and on your life and, and, and showing you what's there. And then accept that God is saying, now come. Now come and be made clean. Now come and receive forgiveness, receive restoration, receive the gift of grace and of power that I'm giving. And so, so this is, first thing we need to know is just what God's instruction is for purity. And this instruction, it exposes us. This, this instruction shows us what's there. It shows us God's standard. And now we need to ask, well, 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 what do we do with that? And so I want to go to the second point now. The second thing we need to walk in purity, the second thing we need to know is what the root of purity is. The root of purity. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. So I want to make one note on this passage, on this verse in verse 4. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Some of your versions may say something more like this, that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself. Sounds, sounds fairly different, doesn't it? How to control your body in holiness or how to t- take a wife for yourself. Some passages reflect the original language, which, which literally says that you may know how to possess his own vessel. That's what the original says. It, it, it says how to possess his own vessel. And there, there's very split interpretation of which of these it is to the point that different Bibles say different things at this point. I do not want that to undermine your confidence in God's word and in what we have here, because here's the reality, that there's no question as to what it actually says. The question is, what does it mean? So, so, so it's not that we don't know what God's word says, it's just a question of interpretation. Paul uses a metaphor, vessel, that could mean your own body, or could mean a wife. And, and we see it used both ways in the New Testament. And so as interpreters come to this passage, they seek to understand which does it mean. They're both also true realities. That, that in, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages uh, people, men particularly, says, says it's better to marry than, than to live in sexual morality. He, he encourages that. He, he says, he says, he says embrace God's design. And, and so it's, it's a true statement, but there's also passages where Paul says, says control your flesh, put sin to death, don't let sin have mastery over you. And so they're both true, they, they are both legitimate. Um, as I studied this week, I believe that what he's saying, because he's speaking to the whole congregation, he there's no, nothing that's indicated he's speaking to men specifically. And as he goes, he, he continues to just use generic language. I believe that he's speaking of controlling your own body. What our ESV text says, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. He's calling for self-control. So, you know, we have abstain from sexual morality and then know how to control your body. And it's kind of like when you're learning to drive. And, and you, have to, you have to learn all the rules of the road, right? Like, red means stop. 
Don't cross the double yellow line. Obey the speed limit. You've got to learn all those rules. Like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But you also have to learn how to actually drive that car. <laughs> and if you don't, you're going to get in a wreck. Right? And, and, and so abstain from sexual immorality, that, that, that's Paul saying, know what God has said, know what he prohibits, know what he allows. But now he's saying, you have to know how to control your body. You have to, you have to know how to actually get behind the wheel of the car and drive it if you're going to walk this out. And, and so he calls the believers to self-control. He says, in holiness and honor. Know, know how to control your own body in a way that, that pleases God and that honors others. In a way that glorifies Him, that reflects His own holiness, and that honors other people. That, that honors the image of God in, in yourself and in them. Control your body in that way, is what he says. And then he makes a contrast. Look, he's in verse 5 he says, Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And this is a huge verse for us here. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, Paul looks at the unbelieving world and he says they are controlled by what? The passion of lust. What that, what that is, is they're controlled by the sinful desires of their hearts. They, they have these desires, these lusts, these passions that control the way they live their lives. They, they are guided by them. They are enslaved to them. They, they are the guiding principle. And then he says, the Gentiles who do not know God. And you see what he does there? He's making a connection between the fact that they are, they are controlled by these desires and the fact that they don't know God. What he's implying is that if they knew God, they wouldn't be controlled by those desires. If they knew him, these things would not have that kind of sway over their lives. And this is such an important principle for us to grasp in our fight for purity, and that is, that is this. Self-control is rooted in knowing God. Self-control is rooted in knowing God. And why is that? Well, again, it's, it's all about desire. This is all about desire. If you don't know God, then you look at what the world offers you and you, and you have these, these lusts in your heart and, and that is what you think will satisfy you. You are going to obey those desires every time because you believe that this, this is the ultimate satisfaction that's being offered to me right now. But if you know God, then you have come to know his love. You have come to know his grace. You have come to know his righteousness. You have come to know his glory. You, you've come to know that this God, like the psalmist says, I, I, all I want is to be in your presence. All, all I want is one day in your court. So it's better than a thousand elsewhere. The psalmist says, your love is better than life. It's better than life itself. And, and if you've seen God and you know God that way, and, and, you, and you realize this God is better than anything, that, that, then when that temptation comes, and when that desire, that sinful desire is, is rising in your heart, you are going to have the power to say no, the power to exercise self-control, because you know there's something better here for me. It's, it's what Jonathan Edwards said is, is the power of a new affection, the expulsive power of a new affection, that, that, that there's something greater, there's something better, there's something more satisfying. And, and because that's more satisfying, I can say no to this. Because in saying no to this, I'm saying yes to him. 
I'm saying yes to knowing him. I'm saying yes to enjoying him. I'm saying yes to, to walking with this glorious God that is better than life itself. And so self-control is rooted in this knowing of God. And what this means for us is that, is that when we fight for purity, it needs to start with cultivating our relationship with God. If, if that foundation is not there, we will not exercise self-control. We will do what we most want to do. And if we don't see that God is glorious and that God is better, then we will not exercise self-control. We will know what God has said, and we will choose to sin. Unless we see, God, you are better. And so let's call you to cultivate your knowledge of him, cultivate your relationship with him, spend time in in the word with him, spend time thinking about spend time singing to him so that so that, that, that knowledge of God is so ingrained in your heart that when temptation comes, you are compelled to say, I don't want that, I want him, I want God. That, that's where the power and the freedom for purity is. It's, it's, it's in knowing him. Third, Paul goes into the motives for your purity. You need to know what God has said, his instruction. You need to know the root of how you're going to walk that out. And so it's knowing him and letting that knowledge bring self-control. But then in verses 6 through 8, he brings the motives for purity. It says in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In these verses, Paul holds out two motives for purity. And the first is a negative motive, and the second is a positive motive. And so, first, look at verse 6 again. He says that no one transgressed his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. And I just want to point out in verse 6 there that that sexual sin is a transgression against your brother. It's not a personal sin. It's a community sin. It affects the people in your life. It says don't don't do that. Don't transgress them. Why? Because, Because Jesus is going to avenge them. Jesus is going to come and he is going to execute justice for those sins. And and this raises a few questions for us. The the, the motivation, the the negative motive is is to avoid God's judgment. To to avoid his judgment. Why, Why should you pursue purity? Why should you fight sexual morality? To avoid God's judgment. But this raises some question. Is Paul is Paul warning believers of judgment? Is he? Yes. He is warning believers of judgment. He says, as we've told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, as we warned you, Thessalonian believers, as we warned you, brothers, that the Lord is an avenger in these things. Here's another question then. Will believers experience God's judgment? No. No, they won't. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to see that because on the one hand, we, we can fall off the ledge over here and say, no, I'm, I'm, God has saved me. I'm not going to experience judgment. That, that's not for me. When it really is to you, 
Christian, or you can go the other way and say, I'm not sure if I'm going to be saved. He says, no, God has destined you not for wrath, but to obtain salvation. So, so what's going on here? God uses real warnings to help us walk in the narrow way until the race is done. He, he uses real, if you just picture the, the narrow way and, and there's cliffs on both sides, God doesn't just say, oh, you won't walk off the cliff because you're, you're mine. God guarantees you won't walk off the cliff by, as you're going, putting a sign that says, don't walk off this cliff. Don't go that way. Don't go that way. That, that, that warning itself serves as God's means of helping you keep walking on that path. Do you see that? As the warning comes to you, you, you hear it and you say, I need to fight this. I need to repent of this because if I don't, then... then that I won't be saved, but then at the same time you realize that God is the one who put that there. God is the one who is calling me. God is the one who has urged me. God is the one who is preserving me through this. And, and so hear this today. Submit to God's instruction regarding sexual morality because the Lord is an avenger in these things. Because if you don't, you will be judged. If you don't, you will experience God's wrath. If you don't, you will not be saved. It's a real warning. Verse 8 is helpful. He says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God. And so is Paul saying, if you commit a sexual sin, you will be judged? No, he's not saying that. He is saying, if you disregard what God has said, you choose to deny it and you go your own way, you will be judged, and you will, show, you will show that you were never his. God's children never fail to finally hear his instruction and follow their shepherd. They will fall. They will sin, but they will not decisively reject God's instruction. That's what he's talking about here, a decisive rejection of it, saying, God has said this, but I'm going to disregard that, and I'm going to go my own way, and I'm going to do my own thing. If that's how you think, if that's how you act, and if that takes expression in a life that just does not care about sexual morality, if you just don't fight it, if you just let it live, then you're in danger. And you are in danger. And so submit to God's instruction for the sake of your soul, for the sake of your salvation. Hear the warning and stay on the narrow path. Now at the same time, there's a positive motive, a a stronger motive. He says in verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Think about God's calling on your life. In, in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, he, he says, God, God has chosen you. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. In, in chapter 2, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God, God has called you to himself. He, is, he has called you into his family. He calls you into his kingdom. He calls you into his glory. And he calls you into holiness. You know, say you're taking your child to Disney World. And, and you just want to give them the best weekend of their life. And, and, 
and you spend money and you pack bags and you book a hotel and, 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 you, and you're doing it all to make them happy. And then just imagine on, on the way down, as, as you try to enforce just the rules of the car for your kids, that they are just disobeying and yelling and, and saying, you, that you hate us and, 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 and you're, just, you're just railing against your parents. They're just railing against you. This, this is what we do with God when, when we accept his calling to salvation. We accept his calling to his kingdom, but then we, we rail against his commands and, and we don't want to walk in them. We're not realizing that it's coming from the same exact heart. God's call to salvation and God's call to holiness is coming from the same place. A gracious, good heart that wants you to know his joy. What, what you, we, we can't divide his call to salvation, his call to holiness. They, they, they are one thing. He's calling us into his joy. And, and if we rail against holiness, if we don't submit to his instructions, then we are revealing that we don't trust him. That we don't believe he's good. That we don't believe he's for us. And so the positive motive for purity is to enjoy his calling, to enter into the joy of what he has called you to. God is holding out life and life abundantly to you. And so walk in it. Trust trust his commands. Trust that his commands are good and that they will bring joy to your life. If, if, if you are single, trust that God is calling you into joy in that singleness. In, in, in that inability to know marriage in the current season of your life, trust that God is still good and that the same God who called you into salvation is calling you right now into his joy through calling you to obey these commands. There's nothing better than walking in his holiness. And so we have, we have these instructions and we have this, this root that, that we know God and that brings self-control. We have these motives but at the end of the day, here's, here's the reality, is that we still fail. The reality is that we're still weak. Yes, we know that. Yes, we, yes we, we've seen this. Yes, we understand this. But, but, but when push comes to shove, we, we so often still do not obey. And why is that? It's because we have a, a sinful old man living in our hearts. That, that wars against the Spirit of God. And this is why Paul says at the end, whoever disregards it disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And here we see the power for purity. The power for purity. Last week, uh, I quoted Augustine who said, command what you will and give what you command. Command what you will and give what you command. And, and, and here's what Paul is saying. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God. God has made commands. And this is why it's so tragic to read someone who, who says, I'm not sure if that's a sin or not. Go, go read the Bible. I'm, I'm really not sure. Well, yeah, let's go read the Bible and let's be sure because God has said. God has made it clear. It, it's not, these things aren't up for debate. God has clearly said what his commands are. And to disregard them is to disregard God himself. It's not to disregard a tradition. It's not to disregard a person. It's to disregard the very God who inspired this word. He has commanded what he will. 
but at the same time, he always gives what he commands. He always gives what he commands, and he does it through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, God has taken our our dead hearts and made them alive. And he has empowered our weak flesh with, with, with the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, living in us. The Holy Spirit is in us to help us walk in holiness. God has given what he commands through the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one, back to the knowledge of God, the Spirit is the one who, when we open the Word, he opens our eyes to see how good God really is. He opens our eyes to see, as we read the Word, that that God in Christ, through the cross, is the most glorious, satisfying being in the universe. And I want to give my life. The Spirit does that. The Spirit does that. He empowers us for purity. He has changed us. He has, he, has, he has recomposed the very nature of who we are. We, you are a new creation this morning. You're not who you were. You are brand new. Before, you could not say no to sin, but now you can through the Spirit. Joey, I know you like basketball, and, and uh, so I'm going to use you for this illustration. Just... Just imagine you growing up and you were out in the court. Just and you're probably watching MJ a lot, and and uh, so I want to be like Mike. I want to be like Mike. And and you're you're out there practicing and shooting. And, and I don't know what point you realized that you weren't going to be like Mike. You know, um, I hope it was early on to save you some heartache. But but imagine that one day someone came to you and 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 they said, I've got. So Space Jam reference here. I've got Michael's secret stuff. <laughs> All right. Now, in Space Jam, that's just a bottle of water. But let's say it was the real deal. Real deal. This is Michael's secret stuff. You take this, and they say, Joey, if you take this, you are you're going to be changed. This, this, this stuff, it's actually going to, to change your DNA. So, so that inside, your, your very DNA is restructured to be Michael Jordan's DNA. Like, okay, give it to me, all right? So you, so you, you drink the secret stuff, tastes a little funny, you, you get it down, you, you get your clothes on, tie your shoes, you get on the basketball court, and, and you shoot, and it's a brick. And, 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 you, and you run, you try to dunk, and, and, and you get stuffed by the rim. Okay, so, again, this is ridiculous, but let's assume <laughs> that this is really secret, the secret stuff. This, this really happened. You really have Michael Jordan's DNA. In that moment, do you, do you just give up? Do you just say, man, that stuff didn't work. I'm not going to do it. No, you, you have the DNA of the greatest basketball player. And so what you're going to do is you're going to work hard to develop into what you know you can be. You're going to work hard so that you become who you know you can be. And that's what God has done for us in giving us his spirit. God, God has recomposed our hearts, made us new creations, and, and given us a power that, that says, you can walk in holiness. Now, we will fail. We, we, we will fall. We will sin. But we know that through the Spirit, we can become holy more and more and more. And, and what this encourages us to do is to fight for it. It encourages us to press toward it. It encourages us to, to pursue it. Because, because we know that God has changed us, and we know that he empowers us, and that it's possible. Holiness is possible through the Spirit of God. Purity is possible through the Spirit of God. I want to conclude with four applications 
First, this morning, if you look at your life and you say, I, I am not abstaining from sexual morality, confess that. Confess it. Confess it to God and confess it to someone in this church. Because I, I can tell you that purity will not come in isolation from the people of God walking with you through that, from spiritual mentors helping you through that, from people praying with you. Confess it to God and confess it to a trusted brother or sister who will walk with you and pray with you and love you and keep you accountable. Confess it. Second, receive God's forgiveness. This is a hard text. This is a somber text. It's a serious text, but in the middle of it all, we're reminded of God's calling on our lives. And, and framed around it all is this reality that we are adopted into his family as brothers. And, and what these realities remind us is that, is that we don't need to hide these sins, but we need to come to them and, and as we confess them, receive the forgiveness that God offers you. To today, right now, God forgives you. As you confess and you put your trust in Jesus Christ who bore these sins, who became what you are on the cross so that you can have his righteousness, you can come and, and you can confidently confess knowing that, that you will receive full forgiveness, abundant pardon. He will abundantly pardon. And so do not live under the weight of your sin. Jesus bore it for you. Receive that forgiveness. The third, I want to call you to grow. Grow. Wherever you are in terms of purity, however impure your life might be, grow from where you are today. God has given you everything you need to walk in sanctification. And finally, witness. As we began, I believe that in our current day and age, this issue gives maybe more opportunity for a compelling, clear witness to a world that in many ways looks like us, but in this way they do not. God calls us to be set apart. He calls us to be sanctified. And, and as we firmly bear witness to these things and walk in these things, it will be a light to the darkness. And it will show the world that Jesus is better than what the world thinks will satisfy them. And as we suffer with Christ, we will, we will declare in that suffering that our hearts have been completely satisfied in our Savior Jesus Christ. So witness to these things. Be bold, be courageous, be clear. See these as opportunities, not merely responsibilities, but opportunities to know and to know Christ and to make him known. I'll pray and we will.
close today by, by singing about how God is stronger than all of our sin and rejoice in the victory he gives us through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we, we do confess our impurity. We confess our failing. We confess our lust. We confess our, our actions that, that, that are not faithful to your design. You are a holy God, and, and we confess unholiness in our lives. Lord, we thank you that when, when you saw our unholiness, that your response was, was not to say, make yourself holy, and it was not to just judge us for that, but your response was to send your son who lived a holy life, a chaste life, a life that was completely satisfied in doing your will, and then he died for our unholiness and our unfaithfulness. And he rose again, and his spirit is in us. And God, we, we, we just praise you today for the grace you've shown us in forgiveness and the grace you continue to show us in empowering us to live for your glory and ultimately the grace that you will show us when Christ returns. And on that day, we are confident that you have not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.